I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you haven't ordered your copy of Peter Hart's new book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, now is the time to do it. The Gallipoli evacuation was one of the most important chapters of the entire Gallipoli story, and this is the first book to explore it in detail. From dithering politicians in London, to the winter storms, to the ingenious ruse that enabled the Allies to escape, such as the self-firing rifles and the silent periods, this book tells the whole gripping story of this life-and-death gamble. And Peter Hart really is the man to tell this story with his wonderful writing style, his insightful accounts of the history, and most importantly, his use of quotes from veterans of the campaign. The story of the Gallipoli evacuation is really told in the words of the men who were there. The book is now available in softcover or ebook, and you can order it all over the world and pay in your local currency. So visit our website, livinghistorytv.com, to order your copy today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to Peter Hart's Military History Podcast. And here I am with lovely Gary Bain. The talk of East Finchley, the talk of North Tottenham, the talk of everywhere. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, just one small uh, thing. Uh, one, just a, when I say it's a cloud on the horizon, it is actually a sort of vapour, a sort of poisonous odour that surrounds us. Is that you, Gary? No, that's the dog, and you know it is. The dog's in the room, and he's started as he means to go on. Excellent. Uh, odor Fred? Odor Fred. Now, <laughs> I think it's really good of you to give me some sort of hint as to what we're doing today. So I've got to guess what we're doing based on what you're wearing. <laughs> so you've got a leather flying helmet on, goggles and a tutu that's so it. it must be james mccudden it is james mccudden you are a genius genius spot on uh the ultimate professional air fighter gary the ultimate professional um so who is he well he was born 28th of march 1895 that's long ago in in gillingham or gillingham as you would call it and he's the son of a sergeant major william mccudden uh, royal engineer uh, they moved to Sheerness, those two towns are still arguing as to who owns McCudden. I own him, no, we own him. I've been to Sheerness. Yeah, they've not he, got much going he, he, for yeah, he wouldn't claim them, to be frank. <laughs> oh, no uh, offence to anybody listening who comes from Sheerness. <laughs> I think it's too late, mate. <laughs> and uh, he worked as a post office messenger boy before joining the Royal Engineers as a bugler Ooh. in uh, 1910. Bit of a spot in Gibraltar, uh, but he has an interest in aviation. He used to watch the airy plonks, I think, uh, at Sheerness. And he joins the Royal Flying Corps soon after its formation. Uh, uh, so he joins in about 1913, where he was based at the Farnborough Depot. Now, here, there is a... I read a couple of biographies of, of McCann. And there's an absolutely cracking accident where he, he's sort of messing about with a... What is it? A cauldron, a cauldron type A. And... He thinks it, it's not in gear or whatever you do with aeroplanes. And he accidentally set, and it runs amok. 
<laughs> it sort of goes charging out of the hangar. And what does it do? It badly damages a Farnham. And then, uh, this wouldn't cause any offence to anyone, it, it, it completely wrecks the Colonel's uh, car. That's uh, no less a figure than Colonel Frederick Sykes, a tolerant and easygoing man. Uh, good humour. Good humour. <laughs> Famous Sykes for his good humour. Yep. Anyway, he gets uh, seven days detention and 14 days loss of pay. What do you think hang of that? Hang on, hang on, wait a minute. I got more than that for just being drunk and 50 yards away from somebody who put a brick through a window. Yes. <laughs> I think this is, you know, sometimes you, you're, doing, you're doing history and you think, there's more to be explained than you think. Yes. This story doesn't add up. You, you wreck an aeroplane and the colonel's car and you get seven days and 14 days loss of pay. Hmm. I think uh, I think Sykes may have uh, taken a shine to him. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, um, he was posted shortly afterwards to the squadron Royal Flying Corps, a fine body of men. And uh, I think we'll we'll move on to it. it, 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 it that's in June 1913, and he, he um, they're, they're at Netherhaven, and they're, they're going to set off for war. War comes, Gary, in August 1914. Now, as is traditional, I'm going to mention Major Chris Carling at this point because, if you'll pardon the expression, he took me up to Neverhaven. He took you up the Neverhaven? He took me up the Neverhaven and he showed me around. And it's still there today. And uh, the, it's quite an interesting little base. Uh, I, think, I think it's still there now. It but is. Um, uh, he, was, uh, he was in charge of, um, I think it was the toilet block, um, something like that. He has a penchant for urinals. And, and, and it's funny how he's featuring in all these podcasts. He's getting everywhere. He is getting everywhere. That's, that's his reputation. Um, so you say. <laughs> now, uh, now, in actual fact, the officer's mess at Netherhaven is still a RFC, and it's got a lot of RFC memorabilia. So I urge you to, to visit it. No need to make an appointment. Just walk into the base <laughs> and have a look around. <laughs> You might no. need to make an appointment. <laughs> no harm will come to you, punters. <laughs> anyway, so uh, now there's an unfortunate incident. We'll have to change the mood a bit because uh, McCudden swings the prop of a, an aircraft crewed by Second Lieutenant Robert Skeen with the air mechanic Keith Barlow. And uh, there's a bit of a disaster, isn't there? Uh, can you take us through this? Change your tone? Yeah, so air mechanic sure. James McCudden, 3 Squadron RFC. We then heard the engine stop. And following that, following that, the awful crash, which once heard is never forgotten. I found them both dead. I shall never forget that morning at about half past six, kneeling by poor Keith Barlow and looking at the rising sun and then again at poor Barlow, who had no superficial injury and was killed purely by concussion and wondering if war was going to be like this always. Mm, sensitive soul at times anyway. Uh, I don't know what will happen to him later on in the war. Do you think he'll perhaps become more uh, more of a soldier type or do you think he'll always be, have the soul of a poet? Let's not give away the story, Pete. Let's, Absolutely, Let's Gary. not give it away too early. Anyway, he's, a, he's an engine fitter with three squadron on the Western Front throughout 14 and 15. And some of the airfields were, were quite primitive, weren't they, Gary? You've got a well, story yeah. you like, haven't you? And the aircraft, although let's remember that these were actually state-of-the-art for the time. But they looked primitive to our eyes. To our eyes, yes. You see you see all the, the triple wings and the string holding it together and... Triple and wing. I think that's a bit like <laughs> you've you've gone too early. Plasters <laughs> and uh, bits of glue and planks of wood nailed on and all that sort of thing. Okay, Gary, you're an expert on first of all. I'm clearly <laughs> demonstrating that expertise. Air mechanic James McCadden, three squadron RFC, goes on to say, "We arrived here and found the proposed aerodrome was a beet field. Some Indian cavalry had a roller." Wow, that's flash. And we're at a, Oh, hang on. Here's a lesson in reading ahead, Pete. Some Indian cavalry had a roller and were attempting to level the uneven ground. Not the roller, I presumed. You thought a Rolls Royce. I thought Rolls Royce. I don't think they'd met Mr. Rolls and Mr. Royce in oh, 1914. Dear. And we're attempting to level the uneven ground. While every available man in the squadron turned out to be marched up and down the field to harden the ground and press down the beet roots. We spent a whole afternoon doing this. And although the ground was very soft, it was good enough to land upon when we'd finished. 
Wow, that's a, a little bit dodgy, I say. But uh, so, so not exactly the state-of-the-art airfield. Uh, now, uh, the, there's also problems with the weather in those early days. You've got another story, haven't you, air mechanic James McCudden? Rain pouring in torrents, wind howling like mad, and all the hangers level with the ground, flapping about the machines. To make things more cheerful, there were deep ditches around the hangers to catch the water, and every minute or so one heard a loud splash to the accompaniment of curses and oaths as some unfortunate mechanic Ed, fell into Marks. one of these drainage pools. Uh, that quote was just there for me. Use me. Now, he, he went on the occasional unofficial. He's not an observer, but he went on the occasional mission, uh, just armed with a rifle. Uh, that's all they could get in the air in those days. And in November 1914, he's, he, he's obviously got over that little accident early in his career and he's promoted to corporal. Uh, now, it could be dangerous even on the ground, and there's a, a terrible story about how some bombs are on a, a moraine parasol of Captain Reginald Cholmondley. Uh, they were loading uh, the bombs on board at Henge on 12th of March 1915, ready for a raid on the Don Railway Station. And Corporal James McCudden, you, you take on the story. Uh, can I call you Jimmy, or would that be a little familiar? That's a little f- familiar. You, you could call me Big G, though. Big G. <laughs> it's J. All right, the spelling was never a strong point. We were using ordinary army shells, converting them with a fuse cap which exploded on contact with the ground. I could see what could go wrong here. <laughs> yes. These bombs were inserted into aluminium tubes made in the station workshops and a pin was pushed through to hold the bomb in position. Oh dear. <laughs> when the pilot wished to drop the bomb, he leaned over the side, pulled the pin out and away went the bomb. On this particular occasion... Captain Cholmondley was in the aircraft. The mechanic was busy putting the bomb in and he thought the pin was there. Instead, the bomb came down the tube. He put his knee under it to stop the bomb and the whole thing went up. Now, McCudden, he literally just walked past the machine when the bomb exploded behind him. And he goes on to say, I had just got to my flight sheds when crump, crump, came two explosions in quick succession and I distinctly felt the displacement of air. I turned round and saw Captain Chalmondley's Moraine on fire from wingtip to wingtip. I ran over to render assistance and found about a dozen men lying around the Moraine, all badly mutilated. Owing to the the Moraine being on fire and still more bombs being in the machine, we got away the wounded quickly. That's quite brave, though, actually, isn't it? I mean, they got the wounded away, uh, despite the risk of more explosions. That's quite impressive. April 15, he's promoted to sergeant. Uh, but there's sad news as well, isn't there? Um, his brother, William McCudden, is killed in a, an air crash. Um, and and, and uh, James McCudden always believed it was because uh, his brother had been strapped in uh, when the, during the crash. He'd been strapped in with a safety belt. That, what, what's that to do with? We'll find out later, I think. Um, so he, by then he's even more, he's going up as an occasional observer throughout 15 and he shows himself a steady man, doesn't he, in the, in, in the, the, uh, Fokker scourge. Oh, you mean the Eindecker scourge? Well, yes, Gary, where are you going with this? <laughs> well, I just, I just can't believe the language you're using talking about those Fokkers. I, I apologise unreservedly. You can immelman off. <laughs> um, so, um, um. And and they were by now, but because of the Fockers, <laughs> they were they were flying in formations, early formation flying, and we we did this, didn't we, in our 1915 air warfare? So we're not going to go through the quotes again. But what happened is, uh, McCudden's up with uh, uh, in a formation of three. Uh, a couple of four days earlier, uh, two, two second lieutenant uh, Hobbs and Tudor Jones had been killed by Immerman trying to carry out a reconnaissance mi- mission, and now he goes up and, and uh, d- due to flying in formation and combining together, they were able to beat off the Fokker attacks. Now, what's interesting here for us now is how uh, is, is uh, McCudden's attitude to this incident. Well, if you want to hear more about the incident, listen to our 1915 podcast. But what was uh, McCudden's attitude? He says, I was very thankful indeed to return from this outing. I had imagined that if once Immelman in his Fokker saw us, there was not much chance for us. However, we live 
and learn. Now, we've discussed this in a number of podcasts, not only our own, um, what sort of man he was. But, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, he really did learn. He learnt, became methodical and practised and practised and practised. He learnt from every experience he had. Much akin to yourself then. Uh, I... <laughs> yes. Um, so um, he made an application to train as a pilot. Uh, but uh, but funnily enough, uh, you've served in the forces. And I think this is one of the things that held you back. Uh, people don't want to promote away. He was a highly skilled and competent senior NCO mechanic. Uh, do you think uh, do you think his officers wanted to get rid of him? No, because they're going to want to keep a very very skilled mechanic for their own selfish reasons. I mean, uh, it, he was very good at what he did. Well, eventually he got his way. In January sixteen, he's promoted to flight sergeant and sent home for flying training. Uh, and he made his first solo flight on sixteenth of April, nineteen sixteen. Uh, it goes well, and in July 16, he's posted to fly, fly the two-seater pusher aircraft, FE-2B, with uh, 20 squadron. If you were an aircraft, you wouldn't be a Fokker, you'd be a pusher. Yeah, so we're basically saying that's with the propeller at the rear of the plane, doing exactly as it describes, pushing the plane. Learned so much. Well, it's, it's the same principle as the modern jet aircraft, isn't yeah. it? It's exactly the same principle. I think so. Yeah. Uh, probably we'll get a horde of people saying yeah, no. They're going to tell us it's absolutely nothing, <laughs> nothing to do, to do yeah. with it whatsoever. Bear in mind, I was just talking about triple wings a minute ago. Yeah, you they'll were. Let, they'll they let me off. They do have triple wings uh, before and later. Yeah, they'll let me off. They will let you off because they love you like Twitter a is a forgiving environment. It is, it is. Uh, I've always thought that they've forgiven you for your duck's legs disease. They'll forgive you for anything. Um, so... Um, uh, he's with 20 Squadron on FE-2Bs, but nothing much to report there. In August, he's put on the single-seater DH-2. They're also a pusher, but they're a, what you do, the difference is between a, a, a single-seater and, and a two-seater? The number of seats? Yes. Oh, I, don't, I don't know why I bother asking you questions. I should just presume you know these things. Uh, he scored his first victory on the 6th of September, so that's 16. And on 8th September, let, there's a more interesting where he has another close encounter with what you would call an Eindecker and I would call a Fokker. Flight Sergeant James McCadden, <coughs> excuse me, 29th Squadron RFC. I fired a red light to draw the attention of the rest of the patrol and then turned nose on to the Fokker. We both opened fire together at about 300 yards range. After firing about three shots, my gun stopped, and whilst I was trying to rectify the stoppage, the Fokker turned round behind me and had again opened fire. I now did a silly thing. Instead of revving round and waiting for the other two DH2s to help me, I put my engine off and dived, but not straight. The Fokker followed, shooting as opportunity offered, and I could hear his bullets coming far too close to be healthy. At one time, I glanced up and saw him just a hundred feet above me, following my S turns. That's pretty exciting. What happens next then? Well, he, he eventually gets his gun going and he, he puts the engine back on and he and he zooms up and he <laughs> says, "The Fok the Fokker zoomed also, but passed above and in front of me. Now was my opportunity, which I seized with alacrity." Was that word there to catch me out, Pink? I didn't say it. I elevated my gun and fired a few shots at him from under his fuselage, but my gun again stopped. The Fokker, whose pilot apparently had lost sight of me, dived steeply, and I followed feeling very brave. Again, I got my gun to function, but the Fokker had easily outdived me. My lucky star undoubtedly shone again on this day, for the Fokker had only managed... To put two bullets through my machine. So I was indeed... Will you stop laughing? So I was indeed thankful. For if the German had only been a little skilful, I think he would have got me. But still, this was all very good experience for me. And if one gets out of such tight corners, it increases one's confidence enormously. Now, we've spoken previously about how the leaps in technology give you the advantage and clearly the Fockers have the advantage because even though he's referring to him as not having you know much skill a little more skillful the the Fokker was outmaneuvering and probably would have outmaneuvered a, a, a lesser pilot and of course 
the Fokkers would have been fitted with the, the Spandau machine gun with the interrupters through through the propeller, so able to fire from the front. And I'm assuming the DH2s had the Lewis gun. Uh, yeah, a single Lewis to unfit it. Now, I would say the DH2 and the Fokker are roughly speaking uh, equal, but if your machine gun jams, you're helpless. So there, there is an interesting point about that. that the Fokkers, uh, the DH2, in the end, with the FE2B, do end the Fokker scourge. But th- this is the point. Uh, if if your machine gun doesn't work, you are helpless. And how many rounds were there in the magazine? Uh, the forty-seven. Gun? I'm going for forty-seven. So I mean, it could be forty-seven or ninety-seven. Uh, I don't think they had the double ones. There. So they they didn't fit them to the aircraft. I thought that was seventeen, but I, I, you know me and memory. No, no, it's perfectly possible. But um, I just wanted to see if you could remember how many rounds there is were it in right, the list. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned so much. <laughs> Do you think I'll remember? No. All right. Now, uh, well, the other thing is McCudden's learning again, isn't he? And, and and it's this that makes him the potential to become a lethal pilot. Was everything he experiences, he seems to store away in his memory banks. He's commissioned wow, <laughs> on the 1st of January, 17. So he's a second lieutenant now. Uh, you weren't commissioned, were you? Not until after I left the forces. <laughs> no, that's not your brief period as a commissioner. I think you're misunderstanding the, the word there. Um, so you commit, and 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 he's now he's getting better and better as a combat flyer. And on the 23rd of February, he said he's he's had his first stint. Uh, by then, he'd got the five victories uh, necessary to become counted as an ace. Now, you were surprised it was so few. Yeah, weren't you? I, I always am. You know, I I think the natural assumption is when you talk about an ace, is somebody with, you know. Dozens of victories, the uh, uh, you know the Richtofens of of this world, the uh, the Albert Balls. That would be the case later on, but this is early in the war, and people just haven't. It had only been going aerial fighting and aeroplanes capable of shooting each other, so five seemed a lot then. Yeah. Uh, later on, it doesn't seem so much. Now he's posted as a as a, an instructor to training establishments, uh, finishing up at Dover, where he, he where he would fly the sop with pup. Uh, and amongst his pupils would be uh, Edward Manick. Um And there's, there's a demonstration of his Mick. flying. Edward. Mick Manock. You're so familiar. <laughs> oh. oh, I just I might be getting confused with. And Mick. so here's second lieutenant. I'm going to be really formal. J C F. Hopkins, RFC, and, and Hopkins says this. McCudden was a brilliant pilot, absolutely outstanding. I saw him do the most hair-raising stunts around the aerodrome, where he was demonstrating what a pup could do. His favourite was to loop directly off the ground wow. when he was taking off and continue looping. Once he looped 13 times from takeoff, and when he finished, he was 500 feet high. A wonderful piece of flying. Or he would go up to about 1,000 feet, turn the engine, the machine upside down, and just go round the airfield till the engine stopped. Then he'd go on gliding. Next thing, he'd roll it out, get the engine going again, and away he'd go. He was absolutely marvellous. There wasn't a thing he couldn't do with that machine. Yes. Okay. So, so from my own mind, Pete, in order to gain height at this point, were, were the aircrafts able to climb in, you know, the modern way, or did they have to to go around in circles to gain height? I'm just thinking about, you know, looping on takeoff. Well, looping is around is just very dangerous indeed, and uh, it's stunting. You shouldn't be doing it really, but they did. They were. When we think, I mean, McCudden was quite quiet, but like there is a touch of the show off about him at times. Uh, funnily enough, it, most people re- de- describe him as an excellent pilot and a steady pilot and uh, and uh, an accurate pilot. So this is this 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 oral history account shows that he could show off as well, and perhaps uh, that will come into the story later on. Now, at this time, he's also involved in the Gotha bomber raids. Uh, there's two a couple of stories here that you're going to read. Thirteenth uh, of June, nine seventeen. There's the Gotha raid on London. I think that's the one where the Upper North School was hit and a lot of kids killed, um, and some ninety-two <laughs> aircraft take off. But they're, they're not organised at all, and they can't get the necessary altitude. A lot of them aren't very good aircraft. But one of those chasing them was McCudden, and you're now going to be captain. Another promotion, Gary? Yeah, he's promoted again. Uh, he's on the home establishment, but tell us this story. So Captain James McCudden, home establishment RFC. 
To my dismay, I found that I could not lessen the range to any appreciable extent. By the time I got to 500 feet under the rear machine, we were 20 miles east of the Essex coast, and visions of a very long swim entered my mind. So I decided to fire all my ammunition and then depart. To my intense chagrin, the last hun did not take the slightest notice. How the ins- how insolent those damn Boshes did look, absolutely lording the sky over England. I was absolutely furious to think that the Huns should come over and bomb London and have it practically all their own way. I simply hated the Hun more than ever. Crikey. Oh dear. Uh, there was another raid on 7th of July, the bombs tumbling down over the East End and the city this time, and he takes off again in his sop with pup. And this is uh, Second Lieutenant J.C.F. Hopkins, who saw him go. And this is a great quote. He obviously wanted to go and tackle these blighters. He went almost mad rushing about. I believe his Vickers gun was not loaded, but he had a, a Lewis gun on the top plane. He was dashing round, ga- grabbing magazines of ammunition, all he could get from various mechanics. He stuck these in the wire around his cockpit, and away he went. Now, you taking up the story, Mr. McCudden. Tell us what happened. Uh, I dived on the rearmost machine and fired a whole drum at close range. In diving, I came rather too near the top plane of the Gotha, or Gotha, and had to level out so violently to avoid running into him that the downward pressure of my weight as I pulled the joystick back was so great that my seat bearers broke, and I was glad it wasn't my wings. I remained above again and now thought of a different way to attack the rearmost Gotha. I put on a new drum and dived from the Hun's right rear to within 300 feet when I suddenly swerved and changing over to his left rear closed to within 50 yards and finished my drum before the enemy gunner could swing his gun from the side at which I first dived. I zoomed away but the Hun still appeared to be okay. Then I put on my third and last drum and made up my mind that I should have a good go at getting him. I repeated the manoeuvre of changing from one side to the other and had the satisfaction of seeing my tracer bullet strike all about his fuselage and wings, but beyond causing the Gothard to push his nose down a little, it had not the desired effect. I was very disappointed, for I now had nothing else to do except fly alongside the Huns and make faces at them. Now, the reason he was doing that was he was hoping that other aircraft... He was trying to distract the Germans so that other aircraft could could attack. He was very McCudden-like, annoyed that nobody did. Uh, uh, so, so he wasn't being as, as as facetious as that quote makes it sound. June 17, he goes back to the Western Front, this time uh, for a brief period flying a SOP with uh, Pup, uh, with 66th Squadron. Uh, but uh, uneventful period. And then the, a key period in his life comes when in August 1917, he's posted as a flight commander flying the SE-5A uh, Scout Experimental Mark V variant A. What a name to conjure with, Gary. You know, that's, you know, um, with 56 Squadron. 56 Squadron was sort of supposed to be an Aces Squadron. That's not really the British way, but if there ever was an Aces Squadron, it, it would be 56 Squadron. It, there, some of the very best pilots were, were, were with them. But I'm not sure it was intended to be such. It, it, I'm not, uh, you'd have to ask Alex Revel. He's written a bril- brilliant book on 56 Squadron called uh, something about high and blue. <laughs> it's got those words in it. Um, uh, anyway, he was now, I think, would you say he was ready for his moment? What was, was what, what, how, what state's he in to, be, to take his, this, his, this role up? Well, he's in, he's in good condition. He, he very, 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 very rarely drank. He was physically fit. You know, he kept himself in good shape. So, yeah, I think he's probably ready now. And he, he, clearly he'd got a lot of experience by now. Yeah, he's, uh, he's got his natural flying ability, which we've seen demonstrated, his shooting ability, and attention to detail on the ground. Uh, he, he, he always makes sure his engine's running. Uh, he he gets every bit of power he can from his engine. His machine guns, he checks, rechecks, makes sure that every, you know the, 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 the bullets are properly loaded uh, the, uh, and the belt checks everything. He aligns his sights, trues up the machine guns to the sights. He does everything possible to avoid the gun jamming. Now, 
Remember him learning that lesson? Yeah, yeah, because that uh, was quite common at the time. It was. And as you say, he drank, uh, he kept him in shape. Now, this is equipment officer, Lieutenant H- H- Hubert, Hubert, Charles, 56 Hubert, 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 Hubert. Uh, Captain McCadden was punctilious to, to a degree, always very smart on parade. He was a man who kept himself extraordinarily fit and was a very good pilot. But far more than that, he was a shooting genius. That was, he changed where he came from. As he, yeah, I think Lieutenant Hubert Charles was actually from Scotland. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> uh, his shooting was spectacular. It's, it's, what makes a good shot, would you say, uh, Gary? Well, he's going to have to, we, we've covered this off before, you know, good pilots have got very, very good eyesight. Very good. Uh, superb hand-eye coordination. And, you know, basically, determination as well comes into this. You know, we, we probably cover this off later, you know, the, the Knights of the Air thing. Uh, and just putting yourself in a good position. And, and endless practice, do you think? I know, I know. Oh, he was, he was incredible, wasn't he? You, you mentioned the almost anal way that he approached... Uh, checking everything. That's very Royal Engineers, isn't it, really? The beard stroker in him. But, yeah, I, I mean, he would practice for hours and hours. He'd practice on the ground, in the air, all the time. So here's a quote from Lieutenant Thomas Isbell, who is uh, 41 squadron, and he saw McCudden practice. Where's he from? Uh, I don't know. We'll find we'll out. We'll find out when you start <laughs> speaking. All seen McCudden shoot at targets. We'd all go up and we'd fire at the target. But McCudden would come down and he would tear the target to shreds. He had such a wonderful way of shooting. When when it was, well, what it was, no one seemed to know. You might go fly along and fly 200 bullets and the machine still goes floating on. Not a bit of damage done, but he only had to fire a matter of 200 rounds and the machine seemed to fall to pieces. Sorry, Peter, I'll just correct you there. He only had to fire a matter of 20 rounds. Oh, yeah? It's material. <laughs> Always concentrating on the accent and not on the reading. It's like being in Wales. It's incredible. Wales, you bastard! <laughs> I spend all that time practicing my brummy. Um, his eyesight was exceptional, and and also it's his experience uh, in the air. He always seemed to see the enemy before they saw him. Um, it, they call it air vision. He had it. He could see an aircraft, almost sense when they were there. And then he would stalk them, Gary. Stalk them like a stalky thing. Um, until he could and so get close where they can't see you and then kill them, shoot them down, murderously accurate. No mercy, no nothing. Is he a knight of the air or is he like McCudden? Don't you find this is like McCudden? Not McCudden, like Manic. Well, I think, I think that a number of the aces, it's like Richtofen. You know, they they all put themselves in advantage to kill the opposition. So, so tell me, but the, the the thing that marks him out is the attention to detail, I think. You've got a quote where you're, you're going to say, and this is what you call the beard stroker. Yeah, I mean, and bear in mind, this is, this is him talking about himself. So Captain James McCudden, 56 Squadron RFC. I'm a stickler for detail in every respect. For in aerial fighting, I am sure it is the detail that counts far more than the actual main fighting points. It may sound absurd, but such a thing as having dirty goggles makes all the difference between getting or not getting a hun. Wow, that's uh, that's just professionalism. Uh, and then, and then the second point, the uh, the knight errantry. How much of a bold gay sabreur was he? Well, he says, my system was to always attack the Hun at his disadvantage if possible. And if I were attacked at my disadvantage, I usually broke off the combat. For in my opinion, the Hun in the air must be beaten at his own game, which is cunning. I think that the correct way to wage war is to down as many as possible of the enemy at the least risk, expense and casualties to one's own side. So, pragmatism... No, no fluffiness, no, no knight errantry, no nothing. No, no, yeah. Uh, Just killing. And, you know, (laughs) the only possible exception to that, you described him as the berserker. And uh, in in your notes, you describe him as Captain Allen Ball, who I believe (laughs) uh, played in the 1966 World Cup final. Squeaky voice Portsmouth and England midfielder. Yes. 
I think that may be a mistake. On uh, your it, part. It's also in one of my books. I make the same mistake. I don't know why I keep doing it. It's as if I had Alan Ball in my mind. But you mean Albert Ball? I do mean Albert Ball. He had the, he was the berserker tradition, and McCudden, like Manic and Rick Toffen, he's nothing to do with that, is he? No, uh, no. And it's also you know we've again we've debated this in in a previous podcast. You you can't easily teach the berserker skill set to anybody else but what McCudden's doing is he's laying the foundations for others to be able to be as good as he is now they won't necessarily have as good eyesight and as good reactions but methodical training practice over and over and over again so get the basics instilled in everybody and that, that, that they can then at least attempt to, to follow. Now, it, it, I'm beginning to get the sense that uh, McCann was a little competitive. Would that be right, do you think? Yeah, and uh, there, there's a quote here. He says... Um, I love this quote, actually. <laughs> After breakfast, I played Maybury for the ping-pong championship of 56 Squadron. And after a long tussle, Maybury won. I believe there was keener competition in the squadron to be ping pong champion than to be the star turn Hunstrafer. <laughs> I just like the thought of these two great pilots battering ping pong balls between them. Um, so uh, McCudden by this time is the executioner leading his flight. He's stalking and dispatching his prey uh, and gradually he's shooting down more and more people. Uh, he, his his score starts to mount quite rapidly, although this is still fairly early days. But he's in a really famous dogfight on the 23rd of September 1917. Uh, he's leading B flight, that's his flight. They're on an offensive patrol over the German lines. They're nearly always over German lines in the Ypres area. And he, he suddenly saw an SC-5A from 60 Squadron uh, being attacked by a, a lone Fokker DR-1 triplane. There's a triplane, Gary. Thank you. How many wings does that have? Three. And is it 1914? No, by now it's 1917. <laughs> and who's flying this uh, triplane? It's being fl- flown by uh, Lieutenant Werner Voss of just the 10. So well, the, one, the, one of the great German aces. Yeah. Now tell me what happens, Captain James McCudden. Down we dived at a colossal speed. I went to the right, Reese Davids to the left, and we got behind the triplane together. The German pilot saw us, and turned in the most disconcertingly quick manner. Not a climbing nor immelman turn, but a sort of flat half-spin. By now, the German triplane was in the middle of our formation, and its handling was wonderful to behold. The pilot seemed to be firing at all of us simultaneously, and although I got behind him a second time, I could hardly stay there for a second. His movements were so quick and uncertain that none of us could hold him in sight at all for any decisive time. I now got a good opportunity as he was coming towards me nose on and slightly underneath and had apparently not seen me. I dropped my nose and got him well in my sight and pressed both triggers. As soon as I fired, up came his nose at me and I heard crack, 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 crack as his bullets passed close to me and through my wings. Now, we've commented before that German machine guns definitely sound different from British machine guns because ours go... Dagger, dagger, dagger. Yeah, well, they've got that sort of German accent. Clack, 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 clack. Now, uh, Voss at this time had 48 victories, uh, second only to Richthofen among the German aces. This is a serious... And McCudden and, and the SC-5s, and they're good pilots. He, they could not shoot him down. But, and, and, and Voss forced down. He didn't shoot them down, but he forced down two SC-5s already. Uh, and then at last, Lieutenant Arthur Reese davids managed to get on the Fokker's tail. Eindockers. Eindockers? No, Eindeckers. it's not Eindecker. Eindecker means <laughs> monoplane, you tosser. Yeah. <laughs> I just, oh, I had that trap for this. <laughs> I just don't want you to keep referring to the Fockers. Sorry. Uh, so this is Reese Davids. He said this. Eventually I got east and slightly above the triplane and made for it, getting in a whole Lewis drum and a corresponding number of vicars into him. He made no attempt to turn until I was so close to him that I was certain we would collide. Uh, he was a public schoolboy. Uh, he passed my right-hand wing by inches and, I, and went down. I zoomed. I saw him next with his engine apparently off, gliding west. I dived again and got one shot out of my vicars. However, I reloaded and kept in the dive. I got in another good burst. The triplane did a slight right-hand turn, still going down. I had now overshot him. This was at 1,000 feet. Zoomed, but never saw him again. 
but McCudden does see the end of him, doesn't he? He does. He says, uh, Captain James McCudden, 56 Squadron RFC. I noticed that the triplane's movements were very erratic, and then I saw him go into a fairly steep dive, and so I continued to watch, and then saw the triplane hit the ground and disappear into a thousand fragments, for it seemed to me that it literally went to a powder. Now, this is a fantastic, a very famous dogfight. No one knows why Voss didn't make any real effort to escape. He, nobody knows what was in his mind. Of course, they don't know what was in his mind. Uh, I, I know Arthur Reese Davids was very impressed by him and said, if only, if only he could have lived. Well, he probably should have stopped shooting at him when he was fluttering down helplessly. <laughs> but there you go. That's, uh, but poor old Reese Davids, he wasn't, he, he'd be dead within a matter of weeks. Uh, no matter how good you were, somebody always seemed to have your number uh, if you're a First World War ace. By December 17, McCudden shot down 14 aircraft uh, 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 and, and reached a total of 37 by carrying... Um, uh, he got to 37, so I don't understand that note. Carrying out extra solo patrols on top of his routine patrols. Uh, and on the 28th of December, he shot down four in a day, all accounted for. 28th of December, he shot down another three, all confirmed. And si- all these are since named the pilots, the German people. It's not like uh, other, a lot of some other aces where you just don't know. It, it all seems almost as if it's made up. Uh, all confirmed, uh, and he crippled a fourth. And when he landed, he, he, he said this. Uh, When I landed, the Major said that our Archie gunners had reported Huns falling out of the sky in pieces everywhere. (laughs) Amazing. And he was, by now, a force of nature in the air. He really is an effective, deadly killer. I think it's worth repeating again, but, you know, the the primary role of the RFC at this time was not the scouts or fighter pilots. They were there uh, to protect and enable the observers... Uh, and the reconnaissance flights uh, in support of the artillery. So what you're saying is that uh, the, the bloke in his RE8 or earlier, the BE2C, he would kill far more Germans than any ace like McCudden. Yeah. And it's worth, yes, I think that's a great point that we, we ought to emphasise. Here we are lionising a, a British ace, but in actual fact, uh, the more important role, he's almost there to protect the others. Anyway, uh, so um, uh, McCudden's... Uh, He's just doing fantastic. Now, in January, they, there had been a restriction on, uh, on naming aces in the newspapers. They were all, it was all, almost a secret, unlike the German approach, who Richthoff was a national hero. I, think, I don't know why the British had this approach. That partly, I suppose, because they realised they might get killed, and that would be a bit of a pub. That, just as much you can lionise someone, but then if they're killed, it doesn't look quite so good. Um, but by now, he's, he's, McCudden's a force of nature, and he particularly is useful because of his skills as an engine fitter. So when the new Rumplers and LVGs, they're reconnaissance two-seaters. And remember, we're all building up to German offensives. Were the seats above each other? <laughs> no. Oh, you mean one in front and one behind? Absolutely. They're almost invulnerable for a while to interception because they could fly at nineteen to 20,000 feet, and that's more than the SE-5 can reach. Uh, how, what does McCudden do then? And could you explain what exactly he did, Gary? Yeah, he, he basically goes out, he gets a, a, a set of non-standard high-compression pistons, which he fits to his engine to gain an increase in the engine performance. Whilst he took every single spare ounce of weight from the aircraft... This meant that he was able to to climb faster and higher. Uh, But, of course, there are other problems then when you start getting into altitude. Ah, we'll come to that, definitely. But does it work? Does it work? Because he gets his 50 victory milestone on 16th of February. And I I think you've got a quote here that shows how it works, doesn't it, Gary? Captain James McCudden, 56 Squadron. I saw a Hun two-seater running away east, for he had apparently seen me before I'd seen him, for I was not expecting Huns over for the visibility was not too good. But I suppose he was out for some urgent information. I now opened the throttle of the high-compression Hispano, and I overtook the LVG, just as though he was going backwards, for I should judge my speed to be 20 miles faster level than his. Can I just say, you're just sounding a little bit top gear, Jeremy Clarkson there. Yeah, well, I was just thinking that, actually. That's, That's very like... 
you know. Uh, woof, woof. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a bit like motor racing and how they pass, you know, cars in front and catch them. It's very interesting. I quickly got into position, and although the LVG tried hard, I presented him with a very excellent burst from both guns. Patronising bastard. And then he went down in a vertical nosedive, and then passed vertical onto his back. The enemy gunner shot out of the machine for all the world like a stone out of a catapult, and the unfortunate rascal, rascal seemed all arms and legs. Now that's somebody falling to their death. Yeah, I think that's a little chilling. Yeah, uh, and he is patronising about it. Uh, he's becoming, he's becoming a professional killer, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, and it, remember that very first quote we had about about will war always yeah. be like yeah. this? Well, it will be for some people. If you know. now he went up to twenty thousand feet. You mentioned oxygen. Is there, is there a problem at twenty one thousand feet, Gary? Well, there's a number of problems. One is how cold it is. If you think about you know modern pilots today and the, and the sort of precautions they take. So you 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 know the cold could be even worse than the lack of oxygen. I'm sure it's worse. What's the problem with lack of oxygen? Uh, well, well, that's, it, give it, us a quote. It, it, affects, a... it affects your performance, doesn't it? And you well, don't even know that it is. That's the that's. The well, issue. let's have a quote. Uh, who, come on, then, James McCudden, give us a quote about how how McCudden felt after one of these flights at twenty one thousand feet. I felt very ill indeed. Oh. This was not <laughs> due to the height or the rapidity of my descent but was due to the intense cold that I experienced up high, so that when I got down to a lower altitude, I could breathe more oxygen, with the result that my heart beat more strongly, and I was trying to force my sluggish and cold blood round my veins too quickly. The reactions of this caused me a feeling of faintness and exhaustion that can only be appreciated by those who have experienced it. My word, I did feel ill, and when I got on the ground, the blood returning to my veins, I cannot describe as anything but agony. Now, that sounds a bit like the bends that divers experience. I think, I mean, he seems to be almost invulnerable to the effects of lack of oxygen. But I think, that, let's talk about the Second World War briefly. Because in the Second World War, lots of pilots were flying. And they, they say that oxygen deprivation, hypoxia or whatever it's called, that the effects start as low as 8,000 feet. And McCudden's regularly above 16 and up to 21,000. Uh, now, how did they, they test it? They, they tested the effects of this in the Second World War. Tell us about those experiments, Gary. Yeah, RAF aircrew were put in pressure chambers, which were then drained of oxygen, but then they were filmed to illustrate to them the dire effects that hypoxia had on their cognitive processes. The overall effect was that of stupidity, for want of a better word, and all-embracing incompetence, with the key point that they had no idea that anything was wrong. And what that makes me wonder, Pete, is whether you're operating in a chamber drained of oxygen. Oh, um, my wife would say very similar things. I think my study something occasionally, oh, I, I fear that our... Our room may be about to be drained filled. of all oxygen by Fred. Yeah. Um, so he got his last pair of victories on the 26th of February. And the first of these is typical of his methods, isn't it? So let's look at the uh, 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 a typical victory, James McCudden. Go. What a beautiful day it was, but I felt so bad for my throat was very sore and the cold and height were affecting it. Are you start, you're, you're, suffering, you're starting to suffer from health problems, aren't you? Why are you saying that? Carry on. But there, are a lot, but there are a lot of the enemy to be fought. And so I stayed up and very soon saw a rumpler a few hundred feet above me returning to his lines from above Arras. I followed him in the direction of Douai and finally got to close range and fired a good burst from both my machine guns. And at once the two-seater burst into flames and then fell to pieces, the wreckage falling east of Oppie. Now, as I was so usually the case, they, that was uh, Vice, uh, uh, Vice Feldwebel Otto Kress and his observer, Lieutenant Rudolf Binting. They're both killed. Um, now, McCudden's second victory that day is non-standard. That was standard. This is non-standard. This is he's, it's a Hanover two-seater he's attacking, and he takes stupid, stupid, uncharacteristic risks, which I think he can put down to the health problems that start to build up, and also a growing fixation we'll discuss afterwards. Captain James McCudden, 56 Squadron. I said to myself, I'm going to shoot down that Hanover or be shot down in the attempt. I secured my firing position and placing my sight on the Hanover's fuselage, 
I fired both guns until the two-seater fell to pieces and the wreckage fell down slowly, a fluttering monument to my 57th victory and my last over the enemy for a time. As I looked at the machine, I saw the enemy gunner fall away from the Hanover fuselage and I had no feeling for him, for I knew he was dead, for I had fired 300 rounds of ammunition at the Hanover at very close range and I must have got 90% hits. Now, inside that Hanover were Unter-Officer Max Schweier and Lieutenant Walter Jaeger, both killed. Uh, they're verifiable, but th- this is combat fatigue and physical uh, symptoms we're starting to get here. Uh, and he's beginning to obsess. What's he beginning to obsess on then? Well, he starts to, to obsess on the score and the chance of overtaking Richthofen. But he's not alone in that. I mean, Manock did exactly the same thing. And uh, what, what's Manock's... Uh, what was uh, McCudden's rule? Uh, Take no risks, but you've just said you've just taken a load of risks, stupid risks. Doesn't that remind you of Manic? Manic started to disobey his old rules. Richthofen disobeyed his old. So, is there a PTSD? Is there a combat fatigue coming in here? Do you think? Yeah, I think in in the modern world, uh, all three of those I think would have been removed from frontline action and and uh, probably sent home for uh, the remainder of the war. Frankly. Uh, where there would be more use instructing and passing on all that massive accumulated yeah, I mean, knowledge. It, you could argue it's a waste of their talents now. You know, they, they are such uh, leaders uh, and such uh, uh, icons for the age that they, they, they could have been, perhaps, for their own good, removed from active service. But they don't want to. But we found that with Manak and now with McCudden. Now, the, uh, McCudden's response to being sent home, he was sent home. They did send him home. On the, uh, and uh, in March... There's a response to the leaving do. Tell, tell us what he... And, and how, how atypical is this? In bed that evening, I thought over it all, and I now more than ever regretted that I had to leave a life that was all, my everything to me, and I confess I cried. That's not McCudden, is it? That's not his normal self. No, but I think that's normal for people in great situations of stress that that becomes their life. And there is an argument that take them away from that, they, they don't see a meaning to their life. So I think that, that that's quite understandable. Now, he was on leave. Uh, well, he has leave. He's awarded the Victoria Cross. He's lionised by London Society. He has a good time, I think. And then he's posted an instructor to the School of Aerial Fighting and Air. Oh, poor sod. That's in Scotland. Yeah. How he must have suffered. Uh, now, um... Here he's training, and there's a, there's a Lieutenant Bogart Rogers School of Aerial Fighting, and, and he said this is the impression, and this is why what you said is so important. This is what he offered, or could have offered. McCudden gave a great talk this morning, sort of opened up a bit, made it very clear that successful pilots are so only because they've worked like sin, studied every phase and detail of flying, machines, and the habits and haunts of the Hun. To take a talk nonchalantly of doing in Germans at 20,000 feet, of studying all available material in order that you may know where to go and look for them, convinces you that this is surely the greatest game God created. There's nothing like it. And as an Arsenal supporter, you probably feel feel the need of some greater game. Well, I was going to say, I felt the same after the FA Cup win thing. Oh, think of those poor Chelsea fans, robbed only by the referee. Uh. (laughs) So is McCudden happy to be an instructor, Gary? No, I mean, mean, if you listen to that quote, he clearly does it well. He clearly uh, convinces them of his enthusiasm. But, you know, he's looking for return to action. Now, he's considered for a command of the 85 Squadron, which had been, they'd lost uh, Major William Bishop. We'll not talk about him. Uh, and they needed sorted out. They're a conglomeration of uh, undisciplined and underachieving free spirits, I think is a polite way of putting it. They, they thought of themselves as an elite, but they hadn't actually achieved very much uh, other than Bishop. Uh, and if so, uh, if you see what I mean. They didn't fancy having Major James McCudden, he was a major by then, a noted disciplinarian taking over command. And this is Lieutenant John Greeder, 85 Squadron, RAF. And he says, the general came over and had tea with us and asked us, <laughs> sudden change of accent, <laughs> and asked us who we wanted for CO. He wanted to send us McCudden. He's Australian. I thought he's American. <laughs> we don't want him. He gets hands himself, but he doesn't give anybody else a chance of them. The rest of the squadron objected because he was once a Tommy. 
and his father was a sergeant major in the old army. I couldn't see that was anything against him, but the English have great ideas of caste. Um, That's yes. just basically snobbishness towards a man from the ranks, frankly. Yeah, he's beyond the pale for a certain sort of officer, I suppose. Uh, there's also rumours he maximises his own kills. Yes, he does. But then so does Rick Duff and so does Manic. So Manic did have some sort of sharing, but he always claimed it as well. Uh, it, it, it's just, they are the sharp cutting edge, aren't they? That's what they are. Um, it, uh, well, they're usually the best shots in the squadron. Uh, they're usually leading, so so I don't think that's a surprise at no. all. Of course, he's the he, he's the the cutting edge of a squad. Anyway, he's sent to McCudden is eventually promoted to major. Uh, sorry, and and sent to command the sixty squadron, who, who are more accepting. He just completed his memoirs, and you should read them. Fifty five years with the RFC in France, which is the best account of life in the RFC in the Great War. And his closing paragraphs are quite interesting, aren't they? Yeah, 55 years with the RFC in France. Yes, 55 years. He'd had a tough life. (laughs) (laughs) So Major James McCudden says, one or two perhaps of the Allied aviators will have exceeded a total of 100 enemy aeroplanes shot down. Mm, Who's he got in mind for that? He's got himself (laughs) in mind for that, hasn't he? Yeah, he's he's confident, forthright young man. Do you think he's recovered from PTSD? If he had it, this is surmise, remember. But do you think he's recovered from combat fatigue in that month or two? No, I don't think so. But, but, you know, in his own words, he's saying he's not going to take any dashing stunts. So, you know, there there is that element of caution still. Now, on 9th of July, 1918, he takes off in a brand new, important to note, SE-5A from Hounslow, uh, flew to Hesdin, uh, that's the RAF headquarters in France, and then he he, he finds himself in hazy weather over the airfield of Auxy-le-Chateau, which is five miles short where he was going to, which was, uh, where was that? I can't remember. Um, uh, um, Anyway, he decides to land to get directions rather than risk landing an airfield because the the, the front line was moving a lot in those days he thought he'd just check where he was and it's the home of 8 and 52 squadrons so two seaters and McCudden makes a a neat landing asks for directions and takes off and this is Lieutenant L.M. Fenelon of 52 squadron the aircraft took off into the wind and about 100 feet did a vertical turn and flew back across the aerodrome by the side of the wood the engine appeared to be running badly the pilot railed the machine, which failed to straighten out at approximately 200 feet. It crashed nose down into the woods. In those last minutes, uh, McCudden switched off his engine to reduce the risk of fire and undid his safety belt. What's in his mind there, do you think? His brother. What happened to his brother? Well, he, he was convinced his brother had been killed on crash landing because he was wearing the belt, and uh, so he wasn't thrown clear because the passenger was... With his and, brother, he, yeah. and he survived. So, so it, McCudden, predictably, I suppose, thought that his best chance would be to be thrown clear. And sadly, it wasn't. Uh, the, 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 the ground crew and off-duty pilots run to the scene of the crash where they find the SE-5 smashed up into the trees on the edge of the airfield. There's little hope, but it hadn't caught fire. Then they find McCudden lying under one of the wings uh, and he'd smashed his head smashed his head and the broken windscreen is in the war museum if you want to see it um he's got what's he got uh, well and, and i'm gonna say <laughs> he's probably died because he did undo his seat belt because he hit a tree when he was thrown clear uh, so he never regains consciousness he's got a badly fractured skull skull and dies the same day so he was the the greatest, most deadly British ace of the war. He's, he's still, he was stopped at 57 victories. He was, how old was he? I mean, he must have been about 40 by then, must he? 23. Yeah, it's it's amazing, isn't it? Because he, he joined so young. And he still was so young. Um, and I remember reading Christopher Cole's book when I was 16, and I was almost in tears when he died because we didn't know what happened. So it was all a bit of a surprise to me when he died. Uh, and it just seems so, it, it seems unexplainable. And there's all sorts of rumours spread around. Uh, I mean, you might have heard some of them. Yeah, I mean, it's because it's so unexplainable, there's all sorts of rumours. Because uh, the, the, there's a need to explain what seems unexplainable. So, you know, it was suggested he was drunk, for example, mm. that he'd been stunting again on takeoff, or that he'd crashed in trying to turn back 
when his engine had failed. The classic beginner's mistake. You know. Our favourite is he got a walking stick caught up in the joystick and the controls. That was what I heard. Oh, they, they told me that themselves, you know. <laughs> but they, they did send a, 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 an investigator, didn't they? Lieutenant Hubert Charles, who we mentioned earlier. He, he served with him in 56 Squadron, yep. So he was sent to the scene of the crash and, and he found that the the air intake of the carburetor was identical to the type fitted to the SE5 in, in June 1917. And that had been found that on near vertical turns and it was a very tight airfield that he was taking off from and violent manoeuvres, it flooded the carburetor. Is that, I'm not, I don't drive, is that good? No, it's not a good thing because what it means is you lose power. So why, um, why is that a problem? Well, if you're trying to take off in an aircraft, Pete, why would you need power? Oh. So, Fenlon, he saw McCudden employ a vertical turn on takeoff. So, if he's got the... Uh, now, so he's got the older, unmodified, because they modified it to, pr- to remove that fault. Yeah. But what Ch- Charles is saying is, is that uh, one of the old carburetors had been fitted to this new SE5 in error. Is that, what, is that what he's saying? It is, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because basically you're going to stall. You know, so it's, what it's, happens? Take me through the accident. So so he takes off and and, and he's, he banks. Yeah, so, so you're going to need more power then. So so he would have opened up the throttle. Uh, so it, at that point, because the carburetor would would choke, it, it would basically lose power. It would do the exact opposite of what he needed. So it'd lose flying speed. Uh, so he yeah. turned on his so back. So he turned over onto his back and crashed. There was an inevitability now. At that point, it's going to happen. Now, that was the end of him. He was dead, and uh, his grave is kept. Uh, uh, no, Rick Duffner died not long before. There'd been a huge funeral that was filmed. Uh, everybody was there. It was complete. Uh, was there any of that for McCudden, or was he just, in the end, buried with no ceremony, nothing? No, but, I mean, he it was taken badly by people that knew him. Edward Manock, for example, took it particularly badly. So he was he was remembered by those who knew him, but publicly, and it's probably because of what you said earlier, Peter, that, you know, you're holding up these people as almost invincible heroes, and so you don't want to publicise the fact that he died. And certainly not in the circumstances that he died. So that, he was, that, that probably explains why Rick Doffen was given publicity, because he's German. <laughs> and, he, yeah. I, uh, and, and we buried him with a lot of parts yeah. to draw attention to. Draw attention McCudden to it. was British, buried quietly. I think that explains that. Uh, uh, now, so there, there we go. Uh, McCudden, he scaled the heights, lowly origins, if you like, scaled the heights thanks to his own abilities, his intelligence and, his, uh, and the unwillingness to take unnecessary chances in his prime uh, but uh, in the end he died um, but he also demonstrates you know as you say the very first quote to the to you know the how he was towards the end the 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 romance of the air is is very short-lived and he becomes a killing machine that's what his job is Right. Well, it's been a great story. I, I, I can never decide which I prefer, McCudden or Manic. They're both such great aces, and we've covered both now. If you want to hear more about Manic, listen to that. The other thing we'd ask you to do, and uh, the, the, every, every podcast asks you to do this, if you could review our podcasts on uh, on uh, on any of the whichever podcast uh, means you use, could you review it and say we're lovely? If, Try not to mention our swearing, our forgetting things, and our appalling accents. I apologise for Gary's uh, McCudden accent. Uh, and uh, thank he you. Was, he was from Sheppey. That's exactly the accent he would have had. You mean he spoke like you, Gary? Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. In that case, I congratulate you. Uh, thank you very much, Gary. It's been great fun, and goodbye. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, mate. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?